Again, as we, we started off and said, this is probably one of the best-known conversations in human history, this whole question of, of uh, Nicodemus and Jesus. And, and probably the best-known part of that is what Jesus said in John 3.3. He said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And there's a lot of discussion about what that means. You know, what does it mean to be born again? And, and uh, you know, and there's a lot of disagreement, a lot of different ideas. And so we have to ask, what does it mean? You know, does it mean to just get a new start, to remake oneself? Is it an emotional experience? Is it, is it keeping a set of rules? And then, how is someone born again? Is it something that we do to ourselves? Is it something that comes through our effort? Or is there something else? You know, I, I found a, uh, a thought of a humorous illustration, I think, that kind of goes along with this that I think is relevant to some of the events of this past week. Thanksgiving weekend always is a week where they release all the new blockbuster uh, movies. It's one of the big release weekends of the year. And, and the big weekend release of this, coming, of this uh, past weekend was Wreck-It Ralph. Or, or I'm sorry, Ralph, Ralph Breaks the Internet. And, uh, and it's, you know, apparently for opening weekend, it was the biggest thing. And, and it was a sequel to a movie from 2012, which is Wreck-It Ralph. And, um, and in this, Ralph is a character from video games. And uh, it's an all in the world of, of, of video games. And, and Ralph is a bad guy in a video game. And the thing is, he doesn't want to be a bad guy. You know, he's, uh, you know, he's kind of sick and tired of always having to do the bad things. And you have the heroes that get celebrated. And so he wants to change. He wants to become a good guy. And early in the movie, he, it shows him in a support group for video game villains. You know, you have Al-Anon, Alcoholics Anonymous. This is Bad Anon. You know, it's, it's Bad Guys Anonymous. And... Uh, and, and he's there, and he, in this support group, he begins to share his secret desire uh, to no longer be a bad guy, but to become a good guy. Question, Ralph. We've been asking you to bat it on for years now, and tonight you, you finally show up. Why is that? I don't know. I just felt like coming. I mean, I suppose it has something to do with the fact that, uh, well, today is the 30th anniversary of my game. Happy anniversary, Ralph. Thanks, Satan. Uh, it's subtine, actually. Got it. But here's the thing. Ralph sits back. I don't want to be the bad guy anymore. <laughs> Can't mess with the program, Ralph. You're not going turbo, are you? Turbo? No, I'm not going turbo. Come on, guys. Is it turbo to want a friend? Or a medal? Or a piece of pie every once in a while? Is it turbo to want more out of life? Yes! Ralph, Ralph, we get it. But we can't change who we are. And the sooner you accept that, the better off your game and your life will be. Hey, one game at a time, Ralph. Now let's close out with the bad guy affirmation. They stand and hold hands. I am bad, and that's good. I will never be good, and that's not bad. There's no one I'd rather be than me. You look at that, you know, the whole thing is you can't change who you are. And, and, you, and, you know, that's humorous again, but it raises some really good questions. You know, yeah, we're not created to be a certain kind of character. But for many people in life, we've been a certain type of person our whole lives. And what if in our life we've been this kind of person? What if in our childhood we were told that we're this kind of person? And, and, and our story has been this kind of person. Can you change who you are? Can you just do that and... Can you become a new person? Can you be born again, as, as Jesus talks about? And if so, how do we change? 
Is it a matter of effort? Is it a matter of just trying hard? Is it a matter of finding a good support group that's going to tell us that we can change and help us change? Can we change ourselves or do we need somebody from the outside to change us? Now, when you look at it again, that's a humorous illustration, but it's really all good questions. They're all really relevant questions, and it's the issue that Jesus is speaking to here in John chapter 3. And uh, so when we, when we dive into this, what I want to do is just dive in and first of all look at this guy Nicodemus and to see as he comes to Jesus, what he's doing is he's coming to him with a re- religious mindset, a religious approach. Again, let me reread the first two verses. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher from God, and no one can do these things, or these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now, let me point out a couple things here. First of all, it says that he's a Pharisee. Now, a Pharisee, they, they were the conservative religious sect of the Jewish, uh, the Jewish people. The, you know, very, very religious, very, very sincere. These were people that that studied God's word, that did a tremendous amount to be able to know the word, and and to not only know the word, but to know the laws that were there, and to do everything that they could to keep those laws to the letter. At at their best, they were very serious about their faith. They were very moral in their behavior. Now, sometimes that would go to the negative side, and they were, at their worst, very legalistic in their behavior. So they were focused on behavior and not heart. And they were not only legalistic in the way that they would keep the laws, they were legalistic in the way they applied the laws to everyone else. And so they would judge everyone else by how well they kept the laws as they understood them. So he's a Pharisee, a very religious, moral person, serious about his faith. We're also told that he's a ruler of the Jews. And this suggests that he was likely a member of what was called the Sanhedrin. This was the ruling Jewish religious council. And uh, so the Rome, Rome was in charge, but they allowed the Jews to have some, uh, some autonomy. And specifically, there was this group of 70 rulers, elders, that together kind of made up the Sanhedrin. And uh, now, amongst other things, he was, that means he was older, he was respected, he was wealthy. Um, you know, he had all, this guy is a guy that had it all together. And again, keep this in mind as we look at what, what we see here. Third, it seems that he's representing a larger group. Notice in verse 2 when he comes to Jesus and he uses the first person plural uh, pronoun, we know that you are a teacher of God. So he's not just coming and saying, I've concluded this. It seems to be that there's some other people within either the group of the Pharisees or the Sanhedrin that as they've watched Jesus, they're saying, there's some of us that, that are really open to what you're saying and what you're doing. We think that you're from God. We want to know more about what you're, what you're, you're coming. And so he's representing a group. But a fourth, he comes at night. And so, yeah, this is, you know, this is Nick at night. This is the first Nick at night episode here. And, and, uh, and when you look at this, we're not sure why he's coming at night, but there's hints there. There are, three, there are a couple other times in the book of John that Nicodemus is mentioned. And in one time, he's at least, a, 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 again, an interested person, open to Jesus. The last time in John 8, 19, he's likely a follower of Jesus, but in both times, he's doing it kind of hiddenly. And what it suggests is that while he is open, and there may be a group that, of others that are open, they're in the minority. And the vast majority, what we see throughout the Bible, the Pharisees and the religious leaders were totally opposed to Jesus. And so while he's asking questions, he wants to keep it secret. And he doesn't want to risk being rejected by, you know, by the rest of his friends. And so he's coming, again, not only for himself, but for others. And there's an openness about, Jesus, about him towards Jesus. But what is it that he's asking? I want you to see 
what he, what he, uh, something I've never seen before, and it's one of these things that, you know, uh, once you see it, it becomes really clear. I think what he's really asking is he's asking for Jesus' help. Um, I'm sorry, I put this in the wrong place. Uh, he's, he's asking for his help in reforming religion. And, uh, and, and, and here's what he's doing. He says, I, he's coming, and again, this is what I, I've not seen before. Uh, what he's doing is he's coming in response to what Jesus did at the end of chapter 2. At the end of John chapter 2, what you see is Jesus going into the temple, and as he goes into the temple, the temple is filled with all kinds of, of, um, you know, of, of people selling all kinds of stuff. And you see that reaction. Now, we often don't connect that, and one of the reasons why is that when we read the Bible, we tend to read it with the chapter division. So we see a new chapter, a new story, and we kind of dis- disengage from the old one and go to a new idea. But what you've got to realize is that when John wrote his gospel, he didn't put the chapter divisions in. That was added about a thousand years later. And it makes it easier to kind of navigate, but yet sometimes it breaks up a story that wasn't intended to be broken up. Now, here's what I want you to see. Again, John chapter 2, uh, you have Jesus going into the temple, and, and he sees all these people that are out there that are selling all these animals right there in the temple courtyard. And Jesus is upset, but he doesn't just come, and he doesn't just um, you know, disagree nicely. I mean, he gets angry and acts violently. We saw this last week. Jesus made a whip from some ropes and chased them out of the temple, and he drove all the, out the sheep and the cattle and scattered the money changers and coins over the floor, and he turned over the tables. And so he acts in this, you know, this violent way. And you look at that and you think, okay, now, this was in the temple. You had people that had set this up. And here you have Jesus at this point in time as a probably not real well-known teacher. And this guy comes in and acts this way. That's pretty controversial. And we're not surprised that you see a couple verses later, some of the leaders come and confront him. And they confront him, and basically what they're doing is that they're saying, okay, now, um, you know, why are you doing this? Now, I want you to remember who confronted him, the Jewish leaders, who is Nicodemus. He's one of those leaders. Now, I don't know for sure if he's in that group at that time, but what you've got to realize is is that they certainly talked about it. He was certainly aware of what's going on. And... um, so he heard about this. He heard about these events. He had, if he wasn't there witnessing firsthand, you know, they had, he was in the conversations that they were talking about it. And, and again, I think we're going to see that it's not only him, but probably a couple other people that were open to what Jesus was doing. Now, here's where you see this. I want, I want to show you. Um, look at verse 18. These leaders come to Jesus, and they confront him, and they say, what sign do you show us for doing these things? They're really asking two questions. You know, who gave you the authority to do this? I mean, this is the temple. Who are you, this religious leader, to come in and just, you know, or this, this teacher, to just come in and over, you know, drive everything out, to just mess everything up? Who gave you the authority? Now, we saw, in, actually, in, when Jesus went through it in verse 17, he said, you're turning my father's house into a marketplace. So he's claiming, I'm doing this in the authority of God. So whose authority, and specifically, if you're claiming God, then prove it. Show us signs. Show us some kind of sign that demonstrates that you really are from God, that you have the authority to do this. And his response in verse 19 seemed to be not really his response. We see him, and Jesus answered them, destroy this temple, and in three days I'll raise it up. Now, you know, we looked at some of that last week, what that meant. And, um, and, but it wasn't an obvious sign. It was something that was pointing forward. 
But here's what I want you to see. Now look at verse 23. We're told that after that, Jesus stayed in Jerusalem for at least the Passover week, if not longer. And look at what it says that he did. And when he was in the Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. So he's likely there, and he's teaching probably in the temple courtyards. And not only is he teaching, but he's doing many signs. He's doing many miracles. They wanted a sign beforehand. He didn't give them what they asked for, but now there are numerous signs. And because of those numerous signs, we're told that many people are believing. Now, again, what we've got to realize is that I think it's really likely when you put all these things together that Nicodemus is not only if he was there or not when Jesus went into the temple courtyard, he knew what happened. But he's also there, and now he's probably gone to hear Jesus teach numerous times. He's seen some of these miracles. And, um, and, And I believe that part of what happened is that Nicodemus was probably amongst a group of people that themselves were bothered by what had been happening in the temple. They're looking at it and they're saying, yeah, this is wrong that we're turning the temple into a profit center, that we've got all these people that are selling, you know, selling animals and money changers, and this is taking away from the worship of God. And I believe that he's sitting there saying, yes, I I agree with what you're saying. And, And so there's an attraction to what Jesus had done, but they're still saying, well, who are you from? What authority do you have and what signs do you give? And now Nicodemus starts to watch and he seems to, he seems to hear there are a lot of signs. He claimed to be of God, and there are numerous signs that he's doing all these miracles that maybe he really is of God. Now, remember that, and now look at John 3, 2, and look at how Nicodemus begins his conversation with Jesus. He says to him, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher from, come from God, for no one can do these signs unless, uh, that you do unless God is with him. So again, they asked, whose authority What is the evidence? And now Nicodemus is to say, I believe that your claim that God is your authority is validated because you've given the evidence, you've given the signs. And so it's tied directly to the question that was asked at the temple. And so he's coming to Jesus because he sees the need for reform in the practice of the Jewish religion. He sees Jesus as someone that can help him with that goal. He's hoping that Jesus will help him and his friends, you know, that, oh, here's a populist leader that will help move us toward that goal, and here's someone that, you know, that, again, that has the crowd, that has God's blessings, and, and he's got an agenda. But what we've got to see here is that this is at the core one of the ultimate problems of religion, in that religion is, here's a problem, and what is our plan to fix it, and then how do we get God to get, get on board with us? See, religion is at the core is often, okay, what do we do and how do we get God's help in doing what we do? And I believe that's what he's dealing with it. And uh, now the issues that we, that we deal with in our life are vastly different. We're not talking about temple courtyard and things. We're not talking about that in our life, in our culture. But the fact is, is that the problem that we have when we deal with our own life, when we deal with our churches, when we deal with our, with our culture, is that we see a problem We get our solution, and a lot of times religion is to say, how do we go to God, and how do we get his help? How do we get his help? How do we come to him, helping getting him to help us in our plan? And uh, because what we want is we want victory over something. You know, we're dealing with an addiction. We're dealing with something in our past. We're dealing with something, and God, I need your help. And here's my plan. How do you help me? How do you help me to have a better marriage? How do you help me to be more successful here? God, here's my plan. How do you help me? 
or we look for something in our culture. And when you look at so many things again in religion, oh, here's a cultural problem. How do we go to God and how do we get his help to do our plan? So we're not looking for a Lord of our life that we surrender to. We're looking for a co-pilot in our life that will help us manage life a little better. And I love Jesus' response to Nicodemus because I think one of the things, it's, there's a lot there, but one of the things it says right from starters is that for us to really understand Jesus' message, we've got to let him break the paradigm. We've got to let him totally break the paradigm, the, the picture. Again, if we come to religion and we say, okay, religion is about what I do. How do I make myself more acceptable to God? God, how do you help me? God says, okay, well, if you want to hear my message, you've got to realize that that's the wrong question. And you see Jesus doing this. Remember the question he came to, or the, the start, you know, Rabbi, we know that you're a teacher that comes from God, for no one can do the signs that you do unless God is with him. You know, God, you know, Jesus, we believe you, we want your help, you know, let's talk about what happened there in the, in the temple. Let's talk about how do we fix these things. And then look at Jesus' response in verse 3. Jesus answered him, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Now, I want you to just put yourself in that discussion. Jesus, we know you're a teacher of God. You're doing the miracles. Let's talk about the miracles. Let's talk about what happened in the temple. Let's talk about all these things that's going on in the religious environment. And Jesus says, well, you've you got to be born again to see the kingdom of God. And Nicodemus is like, what? What's that have to do with anything that we're talking about? You know, uh, you know, you know, we'll, we'll talk about your miracles. Let's talk about the temple. Let's talk about what, born again? You know, I think it's, it's one of the things that we're seeing that Jesus does repeat, repeatedly. You do a question. Mary comes to him and says, you know, we're out of wine. And Jesus says, well, it's not my time to die. You know, the, the, the Jewish leaders, they come to him and they say, you know, who gave you the authority? Well, you know, tear down this temple and I'll rebuild it in three days. It, it's like they seem totally unrelated. You know, it almost, it almost seems like Jesus has ADD. You know, just, I mean, I mean good ADD joke. Are you, how many people with ADD does it take to change a light bulb? Let's go ride a bicycle. You know, <laughs> no, I'm, a, I'm an ADD person, so I can say that. That's what I'm like. My wife has to put up with that. You know? And you almost look at that, and you say, is that Jesus here? They're asking him a question, and he just, well, what were you talking about? Let's go talk about it. And it seems that way, but it's not. See, what Jesus is doing is that He's coming and he's basically saying, you're coming to me and you have your, your agenda. You think that you know the problem and you know the solution and you want me to help you with the solution. And what I've got to realize is that as long as we're talking about your agenda, we'll never find the solution. And so he's consistently, they ask him a question and he talks about something that's totally unrelated and they're totally lost because he's trying to get them off the track. He's trying to break the paradigm. See, the, the real issue is something that, that Nicodemus isn't even ready for. He's, he's not thinking that at all. And so instead of Jesus saying, okay, let's, let's, let me follow your question and go down this path, which is all about the wrong questions, here, let me throw you something out that you, you know, that, that's going to leave you confused because I'm trying to help you realize that the issue here is not about how do you get God to help you, how do you redeem, you know, re reform things in religion, it's something totally different. You know, he's looking for a theological discussion about, about miracles and about cleansing the temple, and, and Jesus changes everything. And you see even in Nicodemus' response in verse 4, you know, that 
it's, it, I think it's sarcastic. You know, Nicodemus says, how can a man be born when he's old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? I think that's sarcasm. I think it's kind of saying, you know, my mom thought it was hard to get me out when I was eight pounds. You know, what's she going to do now? You know, it's, it's like, you know, he's throwing something back because he doesn't get it. And Jesus is changing the focus. He's, Nicodemus wants to talk about religion and about the temple, and Jesus says, no, it, it's something that is a radical transformation. And it's not only that, he turns from external. Nicodemus, I think, is saying, let's talk about your miracles and about this and about what's happened in the temple. And, and Jesus says, no, let's talk about you. See, when we talk about it, I, one of the basic principles of understanding the Bible is that you know, the, the Bible is always written to one person. It's always written to me. And so I shouldn't study it and say, what's this theology? And I've got to say, what is God telling me? And Nicodemus is saying, no, let's not talk about what they need to do. Let me talk about you. You need to be born again. Nicodemus, this good, moral, religious person, this guy that had it all together, and he's saying, in spite of all your accomplishments, all, you know, all your reputation, all your wealth, no, you're broken spiritually. You need to be born again. And so he responds in a way that is radical. But then we say, okay, what does it mean to be born again? Again, it's interesting as I, I, I was reflecting on this in our culture. And this is something that our culture is, I think, kind of confused about. I, there was a study that was done a couple years ago, a big national study. It found that over 70% of Americans identified themselves as Christian, but less than half that number, only 29%, consider themselves born-again Christian. And so there's this idea that you have, you know, well, they're a born-again Christian. They're born-again. And that's, you have a big group, a category of Christians, and then you have this little subset. And look at what Jesus says about that. Is it a subset of Christianity? No, it's, it's something that's necessary. John 3, 3, Jesus said, I tell you the truth, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of heaven. There's only one way to get to the kingdom of heaven, and that's to be born again. And if if we missed it, he comes back in verse 7, and he says, don't be surprised when I say you must be born again. Jesus is clear. There aren't two kinds of Christians. There aren't born-again Christians and other kind of Christians. No, there's only one way to be right with God, and that is to be born again. Now, I will acknowledge that a lot of people may have cultural ideas about what that may mean. And so some people see this as a religious experience or keeping certain rules or doing a certain, you know, jumping through a certain hoop, having a certain uh, event that happens in your life. And so we can have wrong ideas, but what we've got to say, okay, what does the Bible say it is? What is Jesus teaching us here? And I think at the core, for beginnings, he's saying this is, he's talking about a new life that comes through the Holy Spirit. Look at his explanation. You know, Nicodemus comes back with the sarcasm. You know, do I have to be, you know, Carl in my mother's womb again? And Jesus said, truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of heaven or kingdom of God. That is what, uh, that which is born of flesh is flesh. That which is born of spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I said to you, you must be born again. Now, there is some question about what Jesus means here when he says, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And, and there are some different ideas and different opinions. Uh, in my opinion, I think it's actually right there. The answer is right there. One of, again, the basic rules of, the, of interpreting the Bible is Scripture interprets Scripture. And rule 1A is you look at the immediate context. Context is king. So it says right there, okay, you know, and unless you've been born of water and of the Spirit, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. 
Then the very next verse, it has a parallel. That which is born of the flesh is flesh. That which is born of the spirit is spirit. And it seems to be that when he talks about born of water, it's the parallel to born of the flesh. When he's talking about born of spirit, both times they're the same way. And what I think what he's saying here is it's not just something that's a physical birth. It's not just, you know, that you're here and then you're, you're born physically and everybody's a child of God. No, everybody's not a child. We're all children in a sense that we're created by God. But we don't all have that relationship with God. There's something else that has to happen. And, and it's not something that comes by natural causes. It's not something that because we're now here and then we can somehow figure out you know, our, our own uh, you know, human spirit, our own human effort, and, and we can try to, to figure it out on our own. No, he's saying no. What you've got to realize is that every human being is a living spirit, but to have this kind of thing, we've got to have experience with the Holy Spirit. It's, it's not just a physical birth. It's a supernatural, spiritual birth. You know, flesh gives rise to one kind of life, and the Spirit gives rise to another kind of life. And if we don't have this second kind of life, the second birth, we'll never see the kingdom of God. We don't have a relationship with God. We don't really understand the message of Jesus Christ. We're not truly Christ followers. Now, again, remember, Nicodemus was also drawn towards Jesus because of his miracles. He had seen this, and he said, okay, we know you're of God. I've seen all these signs that you do. But again, what he's saying is, I, I see this, I, I'm drawn to your supernatural activity. And, and again, Jesus is saying, seeing the supernatural, believing the right theology, believing that I'm of God, that doesn't make you born again. It's not your experience, it's not just your thoughts, there's something beyond that. You see, it's not just affirming that Jesus is God, it's not just affirming the supernatural Jesus, but experiencing that supernatural presence in your own life. We don't need to just see Jesus as God who is the miracle worker. We need to see that Jesus works his miracle in our life. That we surrender to his miraculous power in who we are. And what that means is that means that when we're born again, that we have a new experience, that we're born, that we're new, that we literally are, are born from the, you know, from the root out. See, a lot of times when we think of this, when people think of being born again, it's, it's kind of an improvement. It's again, here's my plan, God helps me. That's religion. Here's my plan, and I go to God, and God, how can you help me do this better? And what he's saying is, no, that's not the case here. When you think about religion, what is it? It's often teachers, and he comes out, we think you're a teacher. And Jesus says, no, if you come to me as a teacher, you don't get it, because you must be born again. I don't want you just to know my teaching. My teaching isn't about, okay, what are the rules and the ideas that if you believe this or if you do this, then you're going to reform yourself, you're going you're to make yourself better. No, it's not a matter of being reformed. You have to be transformed. You have to be born again. You have to have a new start. You have to become a new person. And that means letting God, in a sense, kill the old person and make us new. Let me even try to illustrate it this way. Let's say if you, you know, let's say you have a, a you know, a peach orchard and you, you, you got to grow all these peaches, but you want to, you want to start making applesauce. And so what do you do? Well, you think, okay, well, if I want applesauce, I've, I've got to get apples. So you go out there, your, your peach orchard, and you say, well, what I need to do is I need to prune back my trees. And if I prune them really well, then, then that's going to help. Now that might help get you more peaches, but does it ever get you apples? No, all your efforts of somehow making it better isn't going to change the nature of the fruit. Or if you say, okay, what I want to do is, uh, what we need to go do is, you know, let's go out there in the springtime 
and we're going to take some apples, and we're going to get some wire, and we're going to kind of tie them up on the tree. And so if we get a good start with that, you know, then the tree's going to see that there's apples here, and it's going to take the hint, and, and, it's, going to, and it's going to start growing apples. No, Ken, we laugh at that. You say, if anything's going to happen is that the peaches are going to come out, and they're going to knock the wire off and knock the apples to the ground. Because the thing is, is that if you want to have new fruit, you've got to have new roots. The only way to get this is to say, if you really want apples, you've got to tear out the peach trees, and you've got to plant apple trees. You've got to, you've got to have new, new trees. You have to have new, new, new fruit, you, you know, or, or transformation. It's not just making something different or better. You know, we can laugh at somebody that, you know, we'd hear that description and somebody that would try to do that. But the sad thing is that, again, for many people, their experience of religion is that's what we try to do. We come to God and we say, well, God, I want you to make me new. And, well, make me new means, okay, well, here's, here's who I am. And, and how do you help me do it better? How do you prune me back more? How do, I, how do I try to do these things? How do I keep these rules so that I'm putting the right fruit on my, the life of my tree? And then what happens is that the old fruit just keeps coming back. Because new life isn't somehow just trying to do, I'm going to read the Bible more, I'm going to try to do this, I'm going to go to support groups. It's, it's not just cutting back the tree, it's saying, God, I recognize you need to change me from the inside out. And it's not something I can do. Think of it even this way, when he talks about new birth. I mean, what did you guys do to contribute to your birth? I mean, can anybody remember, you know, like all the effort that you put forward? And no. Of course not. We didn't do anything. We were just born. And what he's saying is in the same way, we've got to recognize it's not what we do. It's we come to God and we say, God, we need you to birth us. We need you to remake us. We need you to transform me. See, there's a, let's even think of it, the, the practical difference, how this plays out, the practical difference between this new birth and religious renovation, which, which is what religion often tries to do. Jesus tries to explain this. Look what he says in verse 6. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the spirit is spirit. Do not marvel that I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. And so it is with everyone who is born of the spirit. Here's what he's saying. You know, flesh gives birth to flesh. If you want to do the fleshly thing in your limited human state, with all your wisdom and all your effort and all your ability, you know, keep trying. But it's not going to produce a different result. You know, the, the whole idea of, you know, they say the insanity is trying to do the same thing again and again and trying, expecting different results. And that's what, in a sense, he's saying, is that no, as long as it's your flesh, as long as your, your efforts, you might clean it up for a little while. You see, but that's all you're trying to do is you're trying to, you're trying to tie fruit on a tree that's the wrong kind of tree. And he says, no, if you want new life, new birth, we have to be born again. What we need is we need the Spirit to come in and for the Spirit to do something the flesh is incapable of doing. You know, the thing is we can lower our life isn't working and we can, how do we do a reboot? How do we fix this? I can't forgive that person. I can't get over this. I can't get over this trauma that I had. I can't, I can't beat this temptation. I can't, how do I do marriage? And what we have to need to do is to recognize that it's not by our efforts. It's not just asking God for help. It's surrendering God. I need your transformation. I need to come, I come to you and I say, God, I agree with you, I can't do it, and I ask you to forgive me, I, ask you, I give you the right to change me. 
And it's a new creation, First, or 2 Corinthians 5.17. If anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away, the new has come. And what happens is that he gives us power. We started out with resurrection power. It's the power that was evidenced in the resurrection, that God comes and through the Holy Spirit, he empowers us to do things we could never do on our own. When we come and we say, God, I agree with you, you I can't, but I need you to do it within me. Suddenly the Holy Spirit, he he changes me not from the outside in, but from the inside out. He changes my root. I become a new person. I'm born again. And suddenly everything about me is transformed. And it's something that he says in Philippians 1.6, I'm sure of this, that he will begin a good work and you will bring it to completion. He will start that and he will bring it to completion. His goal is to change us from the inside out. And over time that we become more and more different in so many ways. You see, but that's not religion. That's the message of the gospel that is so different. It's not our reforming ourselves. It's not getting God to help us with our plan. It's surrendering and letting God do his plan. Now, how do we know if this happens? How do we know if we've been born again? Look what he says in verse 7 and, uh, and 8. Do not marvel when I say to you, you must be born again. The wind blows where it wishes, and you hear its sound, but you do not know where it comes from or where it goes. And so it is with everyone who is born in the Spirit. You know what he's saying here? He's saying, here's how you know this has happened. You look at the wind. Yeah, the wind is something that is invisible. You can't see it. You don't know where it came from. You can't explain it. But you know what? You can see its effects. Think about that. You know, if, if, I, if I say, boy, it sure is windy in here today, isn't it? What a powerful wind. You know, you're sitting there saying, you know, what are you talking about? Oh, yeah, it's really windy. Well, we can't see it. We can't argue about that. We don't know where it comes from. But the thing is, if it's windy, you know, you're going to feel it. We're going to be blown away. Some of, you know, I'd say some of you are going to hair going to move, and some, some people just don't have that problem. And, and, you know, it's invisible, yes, but the effects are, all, are, are evident. And what we've got to realize is that's what he's saying. How do we know we're born again? It's invisible. How do we understand it? How do we explain it? Well, part of it is if you know that God is, is working and the Holy Spirit is in you, you've been born of the Spirit, you may not be able to see the Spirit, but you'll see His effects. And there are some here that, again, if you say, well, I prayed a prayer here, I did this, and I, you know, I was baptized, or I went to catechism, or, man, if you, just because you did something, the question is, is God changing your life? It's not just a matter of, have you walked, you know, walked the aisle? Have you jumped through the right hoop? It's no, have you really surrendered your life to Jesus Christ? And if you have, your life will be changing. Your life will be different. And if your life isn't different, if there's no effect, then you've got to say, is the wind really there? Is the spirit really there? Because just like the wind will always have an effect, the spirit will always have an effect. We will always be changed. If we're born again and a new person from the inside out, It's going to work its way from the inside to the outside. And if it's not working outside at all, we've got to say, am I really changed? Are you growing? Now, the question here is then to say, if I'm not really sure, how do we get here? Well, let me just briefly show you what it means to really find our, to do this. What's it mean? How do we find our new birth? It's by looking to Christ. Just briefly, look at verses, how he ends up in verses 14 and 15. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so the Son of Man might be lift, must be lifted up. Whoever believes in him may have eternal life. And he closes this by referring to this kind of obscure story from Deuteronomy. The Israelites were out in the wilderness, and they had been complaining, and, and God allowed these serpents to come and bite them. And all these people suddenly are, are dying from these the, the snake bites. 
And God said, okay, here's the way that people can be healed. You take a stick and you put a, a, put a gold serpent on it and you have people come and look at it. And if they come and look at the serpent, they'll be healed. And what we're told is that a lot of people wouldn't come. It's like, oh, that couldn't heal us. That couldn't, oh, that, you know, they're out there, they're at the doctor, they're trying to fix themselves. They wouldn't humble themselves to go because it was too simple, it was too easy. They had to do it themselves. And what Jesus is saying, that was all a picture of what it means to be a follower of Christ. You know, again, religion is, what do we do? How do we fix it? God, how do you help me? Here's my plan. Christ said, no, the only way to come to me, the way to be born again is to recognize, God, I don't need a new, I don't, I don't need your help with my plan. I need you to change me. God, I'm willing to allow you to point out things in my life that are wrong. I'm willing to, to, to put you in charge. And there's, there's a humbling nature of that because, because it means we have to stop trying to fix ourselves. We have to admit that we're so messed up we can't fix ourselves. We have to admit that we're broken and our only hope is not God's help, but our surrender and God's transformation. And the good news is there isn't any of us here that's so far gone that you say, well, God wouldn't have anything to do with me. You don't know, you know, no. The thing is, is that if we realize that we don't belong there, that's the first step to coming to Christ. The religious people, many of them, Nicodemus got there, but many didn't because they couldn't ever accept that hum humility of saying, God, I agree with you, I can't fix myself. I don't want your help on my plan, I surrender to your plan. There may be some that, again, you've, you've done all the right things, you've got all the right stuff in, in place, and you're a good moral person, but look at what Jesus says to Nicodemus. We all must be born again. Have you ever trusted in Christ in that way? Is, is it being evident in the way that God's changing you from the inside out? No matter where you're at, God invites you to that relationship with him today. He invites you to have that relationship where you come and that you know that you will see the kingdom of God. Why? Because you've been born again. You've let the Spirit work in your life in that way that He will begin this transformation from the inside out. Have you trusted in Him in that way? If you have, are you letting Him work? Are you letting Him work so that if people look at it and say, how do people know this is true? Well, you know what? I see just like the wind's blowing through, I see the, I see the Spirit blowing through that person's life. They're, I, I can't see the Holy Spirit, I can't, but you know what, I see the effects of it. Is that true? Are there things maybe in your life that you've surrendered to Christ in the past, but you're taking back, taking back? And are you willing to surrender them to Christ today? Are you willing to come and say, God, I want to surrender everything. God, I need a radical work in your life where you change me from the inside out, and I pray that you will come and do it. Not by my efforts or my somehow asking you to help me do better, but by my coming and saying, God, I agree with you, I'm broken. Change me from the root. I give you the right of, of as accepting you as Savior to give you the right as Lord and God to transform me, to make me a new person, to conform me to your image. It's a beautiful story, and it's one that speaks to each one of our lives, and hopefully we apply it to our lives today. Thanks for joining us. If you have any questions about what we talked about, Jesus Christ, our church, or anything else, connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, or by email. We'd love to hear from you.